0: Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure, Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Amanda McCrossin, a certified sommelier and incredible content creator for all things wine-related. From the podcast she hosts, Wine Access Unfiltered, to her YouTube channel and all of her other social media platforms, Amanda is my favorite wine enthusiast. What I love about her wine style is she makes education accessible for a layperson like me, (laughs) who enjoys a lot of wine, but seriously has no clue, while keeping up with the likes of Robert Parker when they share a rare bottle of Screaming Eagle together. In this episode, we discuss Amanda's journey from an aspiring Broadway star and how she pivoted to wine. One thing that we discuss is Amanda suggests for people trying wine to stay outside your comfort zone and try new things, discover something bold, and see what's out there. In listening to how Amanda's career in wine has grown, I've applied that to life as well. She has constantly pushed herself to stay outside her comfort zone and test the boundaries, whether it's striking up a conversation with a sommelier from La Bernardin, to moving across the country from New York to Napa, and more recently, leaving a really prestigious position as head sommelier at Press Restaurant in Napa Valley, which is the place in Napa Valley, and she went off on her own to expand her media business staying outside one's comfort zone is advice I'll keep with me, and I'm inspired by Amanda's curiosity and appetite to always learn more. Please enjoy this conversation with the fantastic Amanda McCrossen. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, I'm so happy to finally be here and it's nice to see your virtual face.
0: (laughs) Exactly. A big thank you to Jason Buck, the entrepreneur and trader extraordinaire for this fantastic introduction. I think it was about a year ago when we were in touch and Jason had reached out and at that time I had maybe like a dozen or so interviews and I think outside of my family, he might have been the only person <laughs> that listened to all the interviews, but he was so kind. He's like, honestly, I have a fantastic connection for you. And so this was a long time coming. Thank you so much for your patience, but I'm thrilled to have you on. And oh, also, I'm, thank thrilled, you to I'm thrilled to
1: be here. I remember when he got off that phone call with Chris and he was like, I know that we don't have a lot of couple friends, but <laughs> I think that Chris and Ian could be excellent candidates. And he started, he first talked about the spreadsheet and food situation and I too have a spreadsheet and food situation. And I was like, yeah, these are probably our people. So we should (laughs) definitely interact in in whatever way that means for our generation. (laughs) You know,
0: you have a good double date matchup when people say food spreadsheet and they're like, yes, me too. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I have so many questions before we talk more about Sam Vivant and your fantastic career and rise in wine and media and all that. I'd love to rewind your highlight reel a little bit and maybe start before your sommelier days and maybe your earlier grape juice years and share with our listeners where you grew up.
1: There was a little grape juice non-fermented of course, but I grew up outside of Philadelphia in a small town called Garnet Valley. A really beautiful place to grow up, beautiful Rural childhood. I was a ballet dancer and started getting into theater when I was a kid. And that's really what I wanted to do my whole life. I had no interest in wine. In fact, my parents didn't really drink wine at all. I think at best it was maybe some Sutter home in the pantry, but we were not drinking the wine back then that I'm bringing to the table for Thanksgiving and Christmas now. So it's a serious upgrade, which is great because the bar was very low. I ended up going to school for musical theater in Pittsburgh and have a great career, come back to Philadelphia, work the stage, get more into film and TV. And you know, with the growing amount of work, my manager at the time said, you know, I think it's probably time to go up to New York full-time. I've been going up there a couple of times a week for auditions anyway. And I was like, Yeah, you're probably right. Let's explore it. So I end up getting a place in New York. I moved in. Actually, before I even moved in, I needed a job. I, I you know, wasn't working full-time as an actress. So I applied to a few places that I found on Craigslist. The only one that responded to me was this place called The Core Club. And at the time, there was no website. There was no information. It just was private club needs a cocktail waitress. And I was like, this could be really sketchy but also it's a job. So let's see what this is about. I go in for the interview. It's this old French guy and I get this questionnaire about things I have no idea or any insight into how to answer ranging from great restaurants to what's your favorite wine? What are the best wine regions in the world. I have no experience. I have absolutely no business being there, but here I am. And the one question I did answer was, what's your favorite wine? And when I was working a side job, there was this great couple who would go to Napa Valley a few times a year and they brought back Groth, uh, which is a very famous vineyard in Oakville. I distinctly remember having the 2004 Groth Reserve. And I was like, this is really delicious. So on this questionnaire, <laughs> I answer my favorite one is a 2004 Groth Reserve. So I don't know what got me the job. But I ended up emailing him after the fact and said, listen, I know that I don't have the qualifications necessary for such a position. I know that I didn't answer any of your questions except for this one. However, you know, I think I have like a little bit of a mind about me. I can figure this out. So like, give me a shot. And he did. He gave me the job. I worked at the core club for a couple of years. And it's this, are you familiar with it? It's this wild place. I'm sure some of your listeners are.
0: I've been a few times, but for the audience who doesn't know the core club, please do share
1: no website, no nothing. My parents at this point are still very skeptical about what this position is. I had gone in and I, you interview in their screening room in the first floor. And then I went up and saw the restaurant and the lounge in the second floor. But basically, it's a private club. You have this place where people need to congregate. Business people need to go and have their meetings there. They'll literally spend their entire days. And from start to finish, they'll go and train with their trainer. They'll shower up there. They'll take their first breakfast meeting. They'll have a, you know, a cocktail in between maybe. Maybe they'll go up to the library to get some work done. And then in the evenings, you could have dinner. There's cocktail hours. There's great sessions that they would have culturally down in the screening room. We had an amazing cultural programming director that would set up talks and conversations and film screenings. And it was a really amazing place with people that I never thought I'd get to meet, including the sommelier who had worked at La Bernadon, who had started as our AGM. And at the time, I was really interested in getting to know the city from a cultural aspect. I, like I said, had a little bit of insight into the food world, but the wine world was very distant. And I'm I'm sure many can relate to the lack of access or entry points into that world. And for me, it was the same thing. I'm a 25-year-old girl, didn't come from a wine family, didn't speak any sort of language other than English. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just have that rosé by the glass. (laughs) So I asked him one day, I said, "You know, can you just recommend some books? Because I'm really intrigued, but I don't know where to start. And he didn't recommend books. He gave me a set of questions that I had to come back to him and answer. And they were questions like, you know, what are the first five growths of Bordeaux? What are the Grand Crus of Chablis? And it obviously was a test to see if I was actually interested, but it sparked a conversation between he and I the following day. And the next day he gave me another set of questions and that went on for a period of time. And before I knew it, I was enrolled in wine school and kind of on a divergent path from the one I had created, which was, you know, I thought I was going to be a big star on Broadway and get all these gigs and like make it famous in the world of film and TV. And now all of a sudden I'm like having all of these doors opened into the wine world. And so it was a weird moment in my life trying to figure out which path to choose. But I think, you know, after a few sleepless nights and conversations, (laughs) I eventually decided that this seems like a good and delicious one at that.
0: I love that. I'm grateful of just being a fan of yours that you decided to go this path. Although I am sure I would appreciate your Broadway path too. One thing I just love about your media and all the stuff that you've produced is wine for me, I love wine. And in this pandemic, I joke that it takes a village and a vineyard to keep me sane. But yes. when I my knowledge of wine is minimal. It's like by color and I kind of know what I want, but I, I really know nothing about it. How did you digest it and say, okay, let's attack this? Because it can be very overwhelming. It can be very intimidating. The numbers of how many vineyards there are and how many varieties and how much you can taste, it's overwhelming. How did you decide, okay, let's go down that path? And also, how did you attack all of the content that you could really digest there?
1: Well, I think the first thing is just understanding that you're not going to get it all in one sitting, and it's not meant to be digested in that way. Wine is meant to be digested slowly and over time and with experience. And I think when you can admit that to yourself and just sort of embrace that, then wine becomes a much more enjoyable experience to learn as opposed to just, you know, trying to buckle down. Now I will say if you're going to be in the wine industry, yeah, it's important to study maps and study regions and soil types and varieties. But for me, it was a combination of having an academic approach and Knowing that I had to study and I had to work, and these classes were, I mean, to this day, they're the most difficult classes I ever took, including any AP courses I took in high school, any honors classes I took in college. It was an overwhelming amount of information. But I think what people who are trying to enjoy wine as opposed to study wine to be a wine professional have to understand is that you don't need to understand. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. You don't have to take an academic approach. In fact, you don't have to understand everything right away. That's our job as wine professionals to help bring you into the fold, tell the stories. And I think if you want to do that, great. But I also don't think the barrier to entry is there for people that don't want to take that academic route. So like, for example, for you, I mean, it's just making sure that you're always staying outside of your comfort zone. So next time you go to a restaurant, don't order the same glass of wine. Next time you go to the wine store, don't order the same wine. If you're ordering wine online, I love wine clubs. I love wine clubs that sort of expand your horizons. I do a lot of work with Wine Access that sort of tells the story. And I think it resonates with people in that way because they get again, to learn about wine organically. And that really was the mantra and the North Star behind what I was trying to do with Sambivant is it doesn't need to be information jammed down your throat. It can just be, let's just like let it sink in.
0: Going back to wine school, can you share the path of wine school and your path to being a sommelier?
1: The pathway to becoming a sommelier is a semi-unusual one, I guess, in the sense that it's a vocation and there is no really regimented curriculum from like a college or university standpoint, like you can go to school for enology and and viticulture, but to become a sommelier, there is no one path that you can take. It's not like becoming a doctor or a lawyer. And so for sommeliers, there are certain schools that you can go to or academies. So I went to the American Sommelier Association's viticulture and vinification part. One, two, and three, which is really just a nine to twelve month class that you take once a week, and it's a lot of self study. I think in wine, it's a lot of self study because you can listen to people all day long, but to understand the ins and outs of it, you have to do a lot of the research yourself and memorize maps, and you know it can be a little bit tedious and tiresome sometimes. <laughs> but I went through the American Sommelier Association, and then you have two certification programs, really uh, two main ones within the wine world. One is the Court of Master Sommeliers which is where you would go to become a master sommelier, which is if you've watched the movie Psalm, that sort of chronicles that journey. That's the journey to becoming a master sommelier through the court. And then you also have the Master of Wine program, which is more of a London based program. You see far less Americans do it, although that is starting to change a little bit. And that goes through the WSET program. So you have these WSET diplomas, so WSET, so WSET level one, level two, level three. And there's schools for that. For me, because I was more in a practical application of wine, meaning I was working the floor as a sommelier versus working, say, as wine rep or working for a winery or becoming an educator. The schools you want to go to for that are more W set and Master of Wine focus. But for those of us that want to be on the floor and actually practicing wine with guests with a hospitality element, that's where you want your sommelier certification. So I took the class through American Sommelier. You do get like a certification through them. It is a recognized one. But then from there, you sit for your levels one, two, three, and then potentially the master's sommelier exam. So after I had passed my initial viticulture vinification examination, that's when I felt mentally prepared. If you think of it as undergrad and like post-grad, that was my undergrad. And then I went and did my graduate work through court of master sommeliers, which is just an examination. They don't offer any sort of like schooling or anything like that. So I sat for my level one and my level two, which is certified. And then after that, it's advanced in master sommelier, which... I decided not to take that path and go for my advanced and master simply because it just wasn't what I wanted to do. I think schools for some people and Certifications are for some people and I just found myself at a point in my life where I was like, you know If I want to circle back to it, I'll definitely do it But I'm learning in a way that makes sense for me right now And I think it is resonating with what I want to do and how I want to live my life So I'm not going to adjust that
0: I loved watching the documentary some the amount of work and heartache and postcards alone It's just something that (laughs) it's more for test taking versus what you're doing is already teaching and also educating others Which I absolutely love but going back to while you're getting your degree were you still working at the core club?
1: Yeah. And actually that was part of it because core club really paid for my education. I think it was in their best interest at the time to have someone on the floor that knew about wine and that was knowledgeable. So they hosted the classes at the core club week after week and in turn that paid for my education. So they were a very, very big part of my wine education and very supportive along the way, you know, really helped me not just with that, but then we also did, you know, blind tasting sessions after that, that they would regularly host. And so I was still working at core club, studying to become a sommelier or studying wine because I didn't actually know if I was going to become a sommelier, <laughs> but I was just studying wine because it was fun. And then also still trying to go to auditions, which at a certain point sort of fizzled out. And I was like, Oh, I don't think I have time for everything. <laughs>
0: And so now here you are, your career is amazing and you are a big advocate for Napa. And I would love to hear your path from New York, from the core club and its early wine days for you to being this ambassador for Napa Valley in so many ways. So I'd love to hear that path.
1: It was one I didn't expect. I was working in New York at the core club. I ended up getting two more positions after that. I was a sommelier at a restaurant and then I ended up becoming the wine director sommelier at another restaurant that has now unfortunately closed called Rich great programs to work with, but I was sort of solo and I didn't have any other wine people on my team. So it's really gratifying because you're doing all the things, you make all the buying decisions and ultimately it becomes your own little baby. But in order to grow, you really need to work with other sommeliers who have more experience than you and can teach you a thing or two. And I felt like that was necessary for me. So I started exploring other opportunities and... It wasn't really finding anything in New York at the time that I thought resonated with me for one reason or another. And I ended up getting a job at a a restaurant that was two Michelin stars and had a great wine list. And I turned it down and I was like, all right, if I'm turning this down, what does that mean? So I started looking out in California for no other reason than I just didn't have much else going on in New York. I was (laughs) single. I had no kids, no attachment. My lease was running out. I mean, you know how it goes. So I started looking in California and ended up applying for a wine director position for Bouchon in Yonville, asked a friend to connect me to some people out there that I could maybe let know that I had applied for it. And in the process of doing so, got connected with Scott Brenner and Kelly White, who were running the press wine program, which was of course very, very famous, but they notoriously don't advertise when they're looking for sommeliers. So she connects me to Scott and he goes, as it turns out, our sommelier just left and we need another person. Don't apply to Bouchon. Let's have a conversation. So I ended up chatting with Scott on the phone. I flew out two weeks after that to visit Napa and Staj at the restaurant, came back that night, gave my notice at the restaurant. And three weeks after that, I was living in Napa Valley with a quick little jaunt to Bordeaux in between. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so that's how I ended up there.
0: One part we didn't mention on this interview, but before when we spoke, you love to travel, you love to experience food and wine and culture. And so much of that, I think, is incorporated in our taste buds without Mm -hmm. being in an academic textbook. But you mentioned a trip to Bordeaux. What did your travels really teach you about how to experience wine and food and culture?
1: I will say the trip to Bordeaux, I'm sure for people who are not in our industry, they're going to think I'm crazy, but those trips are insane. So they're called importer trips. And basically what happens is the importers of these wines from particular regions pay for this field trip for some ways to go to these, you know, places that we all dream of going to. But the secret part of that is they cram everything in. So you basically, you fly to Bordeaux or wherever it was that we flew into and then got there. And from seven in the morning until about midnight, you're doing nothing but eating and drinking and that's it. (laughs) They're literally busing you from chateau to chateau to chateau to chateau and doing nothing but tasting the wine and eating the cheese, tasting the wine. There's no salads, there's no greens. <laughs> there's no. So it's like a crash course in culture. Totally not the way that I would have wanted to do Bordeaux the first time around in theory, but in practice, it was a lot of fun. But I think for me, this notion that I really started to understand after going, because I went to the Languedoc before that in Bordeaux. And I think what I really started to gain was, was a better understanding of this old adage, what grows together, goes together. And so food and wine, they're all married. And what grows together, goes together, saying is is really just that the wine that is made in that particular region tends to pair best with the food that grows there as well. So it's why Mediterranean food pair or like Bronzino from Greece pairs really beautifully with a Sirtigo, which is a great little white wine that comes from Greece. And another great example is in the Loire Valley, you have goat cheese and Sancerre, like a classic pairing, the goat cheese from those particular regions and, and even subregions within that pair beautifully with the cheeses that come from there. So There was a better understanding and appreciation for that notion. And then also understanding how culture can really affect and and the way that people live can affect how the wines are tasting and how they're grown. I think those are things that you can't learn in textbooks. And it's why it's important if you're an Epicurean that loves to eat and drink and travel, go to a wine region. There's not going to be a better example of how your taste buds all come together in particular regions that are agricultural and produce food and produce wine. There's no better representation of how that all comes together on your palate than in a wine region. So I'm lucky that I live in Napa Valley and I get to experience that on a regular basis now. But before that, that was sort of something that became a a real concept in my brain and and was more solidified once I got to California.
0: So transitioning to Napa, what grows there? I mean, it's a perfect blend of wine, but also the food in terms of agriculture and and all the food sources in Northern California and California broadly. But what was your experience like there and what are some of the things that you've learned?
1: Napa is an amazing place. I didn't know what it was going to be like moving from the big city to the most quiet region on the planet. It was literally like crickets the first night that I got there. And <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget, I tried to go to sleep and I was like, is someone going to turn off the noise machine in the background? There? <laughs> but it's a place of community, of generational farming, of a love of the land, a love of what they do, a real passion for everything, not just wine, but the food as well. And so... I don't think I realized how agricultural a community it was and how amazing it is to live in this tiny town that not only has the best in show when it comes to wine, but also in food. There's more Michelin starred restaurants like per capita than pretty much anywhere else in the world. The notion of what grows together, goes together, sort of works there. I mean, it definitely works there, but you kind of have to expand it beyond Napa Valley. But it was crazy to me that my neighbors had chickens in their backyard. I mean, I grew up Like I said, outside of Philadelphia, we're like, (laughs) your eggs came from the grocery store. Your produce came from the grocery store. It was a wild notion that people just had eggs in their backyard and gardens that grew the most delicious produce I'd ever had in my life. So just this notion of freshness and availability and how sunshine and how the weather can affect all of the agriculture that grows there. I don't think that really resonated for me until I lived in a region like that and understood how all of those different facets of wine growing can really affect the outcome. That was probably my biggest takeaway. And then just the sense of community there. I mean, everybody talks about Napa. It all comes together. It's a great community. Like It really is. I know it's super cliche, but we all know each other. We have Sunshine Grocery Store in St. Helena, and you're literally rubbing elbows with farmers who have been there since the 60s who are super famous across the world for having the best vineyards, not only in Napa, but worldwide. So it changed everything for me. It changed how I viewed wine, how I viewed food. It became a part of me, and I took a lot less for granted than I think I did before when I was living in New York.
0: I would love to... If you can, because I'm pretty ignorant with wine and more of the, like kind of the chemistry and like the science behind it. But for those who don't know, including myself, can you share more about what makes Napa so special in growing wines and how is that different than the other areas that are so prolific in wine production?
1: Napa is really tiny by comparison. Napa only accounts for 1% of the wine that is made in California, but it accounts for a significantly larger percentage of the revenue. So it's an important region. But what's really cool about Napa is it's 30 miles north to south, situated between two ranges of mountains, the Vaca and the Mayacamas, and only about five miles across. So very, very tiny by comparison, not only you know, worldwide, but even within the state of California. And within that tiny little region, you've got 50% of the world's soil types, which is insane. It's more than any other wine growing region, pretty much anywhere. And then on top of that, you've got a Mediterranean climate, which means it's kind of dry, very mild. Rarely are we getting any sort of thunderstorms. There's, with the exception of like the fires, you're not getting a lot of serious weather-related patterns that are harming the crop in the way you would have in like Burgundy or Bordeaux, Burgundy with hailstorms, Bordeaux with frost. It's very, very moderate there. And the Mediterranean climate that we enjoy in Napa Valley, only 1% of the planet has. So it's very, very special in this tiny little microcosm. But on top of that, because you have all of these different soil types and because of the way that Napa is laid out, it's very much a patchwork. And so you can have little microclimates even within that tiny little region of 30 miles north, south, five miles across. So weather patterns on Spring Mountain, which is sort of north and on the west side, much cooler, a little bit rainier. And you're talking about maybe 5 to 15 degrees swing in temperature on Spring Mountain versus somewhere like Oakville. It could be a little bit warmer there and much drier. So how does that affect the grapes? Well, making wine is a very, very simple process. You take grapes, you get the juice out of it. If it's a white wine, it's not sitting on skins. If it's a red wine, it is. You add a little yeast. The yeast, yeast, The sugar, the sugar converts to alcohol, and voila, you've got a fermented grape juice that we call wine. And then that ages. So, the biggest component of wine is, of course, the grapes and how they're grown. In warmer climates, you tend to get fruit that's a little bit more on the riper side of things. So, if you think about produce in general, like you think about strawberries, where are the sweetest strawberries going to come from taste wise? It's going to be from a warmer climate, right? You leave a strawberry on for a longer amount of time on the vine. It's going to get more sugar. It's going to taste more ripe. If you were to try to grow tomatoes in Alaska, it probably wouldn't work because you don't have enough sunlight and there's not enough sugar accumulating. Wine and grapes, it's the same thing. So, the warmer a region is going to be, the more potential sugar, which means the more potential alcohol and the more potential tasting ripe that it's going to be. Even within our particular region, you know, it's fairly warm there. So, you're typically getting wines that are between 14 and 16% alcohol because it is a little bit warmer. There's a lot more sugar to work with. We've got California sunshine that's making that happen. But then also compared to Bordeaux, where it's a little bit cooler, they get a lot more rain, they can have more problematic years. The wines tend to be a little bit lighter in alcohol. They tend to be higher in acidity because, of course, again, as sugar goes up, acidity goes down, and vice versa. Very, very elementary speaking. I'm sure there's some scientists out there that are like, "That's not totally correct." You're right. It's not entirely accurate, but close enough. So the wines are going to be tasting a little bit different from Bordeaux than in Napa, just by way of the amount of sunshine and, and the climate. And then, like I said, within even Napa alone, you've got regions like Carneros that are moderated by the bay. So Napa. Cat- doesn't do so well done in Carneros, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay does because it's far more moderate. And you see how the base sort of influences the climate directly there versus if you move up valley. And I don't know if you've ever taken a drive in the morning, but you can actually feel as the fog moves in from Carneros all the way, or as the fog Am I doing this right? (laughs) The fog moves out. It does tend to get warmer as you get more north in Napa Valley towards Calistoga and cooler down in parts of Napa. So you can have like a 15 degree swing north to south on any given day. And then on top of that, you have what's called the diurnal shift, which means at night it gets very cold. Mm -hmm. So that heat isn't retained within the valley. So it could be 90 degrees at peak temperature in the daytime and drop all the way to 60. So that is also what really makes this region very special. The grapes aren't sitting in that heat for an extended amount of time. And those sugars that have accumulated throughout the day, they start to kind of drop off a little bit, the acid can come back and it preserves freshness and acidity. So that's the Lehman's version of that. Um, I I will will not get into the the nitty gritty.
0: Most likely I will listen to that 10 more times because that was an amazing crash course into Napa Valley wine, land. I actually had no idea that it was so small in size in terms of just 30 Mm -hmm. miles by five. I had no idea. Yeah, it's tiny. But it's actually quite impressive the reputation and volume that it produces given Mm -hmm. how small it is. So that's incredible. So going back to your press wine experience, what was that like? So you're in Napa, you get to see what's growing and what goes together. What was that experience like actually in Napa?
1: So working at press, I got to work not only at a restaurant that was sort of like smack dab in the center of everything. They affectionately refer to as the winemaker's water coolers. It's in St. Alina, It's right on 29. So a lot of times what would happen is you'd have winemakers who would be getting off of from the day and they would stop there and they'd have a drink or that's where they would like, it was a halfway point to meet for dinner. So whether they were entertaining clients or having a business meeting, like press typically was the place that you would see the who's who of Napa Valley. And you know, there's just not a lot of places to go. It's a tiny little place. But on top of that, Press is known for having the largest, deepest collection of Napa Valley wines in the world. So, vintages going back to the 1950s, 1960s when I was working there, and a really revelatory wine list because it didn't exist prior to that restaurant. I mean, people weren't drinking aged Napa Valley wines because nobody thought they could age. And just to rewind a little bit, when I lived in New York, it was sort of a faux pas to be drinking Napa Cab. Like as a baby sommelier, you're like, you're drinking Burgundy or you're drinking something that's a little cooler. We were drinking high acid raisings and champagnes. It wasn't really cool to drink Napa Cab. And there was this stigma associated with Napa that all the wines were sort of homogenous and that They're all higher octane, bigger alcohol, juicy, soupy, overripe Cabernets. And I think stereotypes exist for a reason. I think there is a a large contingency of those that exist. But once I got to Napa, I quickly realized that the stereotype was not entirely accurate in that there are so many types of wines out there from this tiny region that are not the way that I had perceived them. And, And certainly when I was in New York did not think Napa Valley wines were capable of aging i was very quickly humbled when i arrived and we were opening these wines that were literally time capsules you know 60s inglenook and bv and Behringer from the 80s. I mean, just the names that you know today as being very, very famous in their infancy. These wines that were just starting to be born into a wine region that was still, again, in its infancy, or at least in a, in a rehab phase, because Napa's been making wine since the 1800s, but really got wiped out a couple of times by prohibition. And then, you know, this little bug called Phylloxera that wiped everything out again. And it wasn't really until the 60s that they had this sort of renaissance period, largely in part due to people like Robert Mondafi that saw this as a world-class growing region. So imagine me coming from New York City to Napa Valley and knowing very little about Napa. What I do know is not great. Literally in the middle of Napa Valley with the world's greatest producers coming in nightly, and I have to sell these old Napa Valley wines. And it becomes a situation where I am very quickly humbled by those around me and Nobody needed to tell me how great these wines were. We were pulling corks corks on them and they were incredible. I mean, wines that were going up against great first growth Bordeaux's four or five times their price and just kicking ass and taking names. I mean, they were just incredible. And you're getting to open them for some of the people that were around to make them who were a part of these stories. So Getting to work with that list was the privilege of a lifetime and working with Scott and Kelly. Kelly then went on to write a book called Napa Valley Then and Now because, again, that wine program was created because nobody had done it before then. And Leslie Rudd, who had founded the restaurant, was going to regions like Burgundy and Bordeaux and drinking old Burgundy and Bordeaux in those regions. It's what you do when you travel to great regions like those. And there wasn't a place like that that existed in Napa Valley where one could go and drink the greats they could go to French Laundry, they could go to Meadowood, but those lists were very European focused. And so Press became the place that you went to if you wanted to drink the best Napa Valley wine. So working there with that list in that region at that moment was the privilege of a lifetime. There, there will never be another moment like that for me. And it shaped how I drink wine and it shaped how I thought about wine. And when we weren't working the floor, we were out in the vineyards talking to the winemakers. And it was really just like an experience where I, I grew so much in a way that I didn't expect. And I also feel like I relearned how to learn. I had a different approach of what education meant to me and where the pertinent facts actually were laying because they weren't in the places that I had thought they were before.
0: You've inspired a lot of people to now just drink a lot more wine, which (laughs) I did drink a lot in preparation for this interview. But I also heard another comment you made where you were able to drink wine and meet Robert Parker. What was that like?
1: Press was the meeting place for everyone. It wasn't just winemakers. It was, you know, the industry who's who. So, yes, within a couple of months of me being there, Robert Parker came through the door and was very comfortable. He had been there many times before. Kelly, who was the wine director, knew him quite well. They had worked together in the past. One of the first encounters I had with Robert Parker, I don't know where Scott and Kelly were. I guess they left me on the floor alone that night, but Anyway, I, I was in the restaurant and Robert Parker walks in the door and he's a big guy, but he's like this gentle giant. So he like he walks in, he's got this big smile on his face, super happy to be there. And he walks over and says hello. And I, you know, I don't know if he like wrote it down, but he always seemed to like know everyone's name, which is just lovely. But anyways, he walks in, he goes hi, how you doing? And you know, how's, and he genuinely wants to know how your day's going. And he looks at me and he goes have you ever seen this? And he pulls out this wine and it's a wine that I'm familiar with, but it's a different color. And I, up until this point, I was not aware that they had made this color wine. And I look at it and I'm like, I mean, I know that wine, but I didn't know that they made a white. And he was like, I know, it's crazy, right? and he said i've never had it before he said let's go you and i will taste it for the first time and not only was it a wine that he and i had ever had before it also happened to be one of the most rare wines not just in Napa Valley but in the world so it was the Screamy eagle you know the most expensive wine that one can buy in Napa Valley and it was the Screamy eagle white wine so they make a tiny 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 amount of sauvignon blanc from their oakville property and we went back and i opened the wine i poured a little sip for me and a glass for him and we cheered, And I, I walked out of the room and I pinched myself and I was like, someday, this is going to be a very big moment in my life. I hadn't thought about it in a long time because I, you know, I had a lot of really cool experiences. But to this day, it's probably the coolest thing that's ever happened to me when it comes to wine, just drinking White Squeagle with Robert How Parker. Special.
0: Well, speaking <laughs> yeah. of high price points, what I loved about a lot of your YouTube series and show is you take very high-end wines, and but you also make it Easier to buy. So whether it's like a two, three, five, $600 bottle of wine, you're like, here's the experience you can get for $30, $40, which is a little bit more in my wheelhouse. And so can you share that experience of getting these elevated, fancy, luxurious, indulgent wines, but really making it more accessible to the Trader Joe's buyer like I am?
1: Yeah, no, I totally understand. It took me a really long time, even as a wine professional, and I still struggle with spending more than like 30, 40 bucks in a bottle of wine. And this is like a terrible thing to say, but I get sent so much wine that like I find myself lacking enough time and nights to drink other things anyway. But, but I yeah. I don't feel so. sorry
0: for you if that's what you're
1: trying to get. <laughs> no, I'm sure no one does. It's. I will say that I always try to Coravin things. When I can, I like you know, I know that I can't drink everything. I'll try to give it to my neighbors and my friends. So the wine rarely gets wasted. So that's, <laughs> that's a good thing. I mean, I think expensive wine is wonderful, but it is not for everyone. And it certainly is not necessary all the time. Like it's fun to drink expensive wine, but One of the things that I really felt like I needed to do was kind of go back to that person that I was when I was 25, 30 years old and couldn't afford these wines. I still can't afford a $500 bottle of wine, but I like to shop for myself and I like to shop for my family. So I would look for great deals in Target and Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And there are some amazing wines out there that are not very expensive. You know, Crue Beaujolais, like one of my all-time favorites, Rarely are you going to spend more than 30, 35 bucks on a great bottle of Beaujolais, which you know has all the, the things that you would probably want on a surface layer from Burgundy, but like, you know, drinks a little bit more easily. The other side of that equation is probably more what you're referring to, is wine access does these like private label bottles where they'll get access to great fruit sources from very very premium vineyards in Napa Valley and they'll bottle it and they'll sell it for like 40 bucks. So there have been some amazing examples that I have talked about and then they quickly disappear because (laughs) those wines never stick around. But I think what people don't realize is the wine industry is very much a business. And so if you are a premium winery or a vineyard, you can't always process all of the grapes that come in. You can't always sell the wine that you're making. It's very difficult to sell expensive bottle of wine. In fact, someone commented on a private label wine. They said, if it was a wine that was worth $500, why don't they sell it for $500? Why are they selling it for $40? And I think my response to that, and if you think of it as a business, it's very expensive to sell a $500 bottle of wine. Like The margins are kind of the same. You've got to hire a national sales ambassador. There's a lot of grooming that goes into getting clients to buy your $500 bottle of wine. There's a lot of marketing that goes into it. So sometimes these wineries, they just have too much fruit or they don't have the bandwidth to be able to sell it all. And so... It's not just wine access that does it. I mean, you'll see it with a few other people too that have the buying power and the capital to be able to invest in, to purchase, making these big purchasing decisions that have the means to offload these wines like... The private labels that you'll see with wine access. So like yesterday was a great example. Radio Silence was a great example. The editorial was a great example. And so those are really fun for me because it, it does offer an access point to some premium juice. Does this taste exactly the same? No, but it kind of gives you a general idea of what those wines might taste like. And I think for most people, drinking a five $600 bottle of wine is just not in the wheelhouse. So I love that they make that possible. And it is more real than I think people realize it, it is. And at the end of the day, it is a business and people have to make money. And cash flow is a real thing for a winery too. And it's expensive to buy barrels. It's expensive to pay people. And sometimes you just got to get cash real quick.
0: Well, so you are in a business. Do you think about your career from a perspective? Okay, what do you want to accomplish in this business for yourself? Like, How do you think about wine tasting and wine media for yourself as a career?
1: The secret is the wine industry is, it's an old industry. And I say that in the most loving way possible because, you know, making wine is we've been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years, but the wine industry is notoriously antiquated in everything that it does. I mean, even from, you know, very old shipping and distribution laws to how they're actually executing marketing. So for me, I kind of look outside of the wine industry and I say, I see what the fashion industry is doing. I see what the beauty industry is doing. I see what the food industry is doing. And I, see opportunity for wine to be marketed and for media to be more a part of the wine world. And so years ago, that's why I started my YouTube and my Instagram. I mean, someone had told me that I had read and, and someone had told me, I suppose, but if you build your following, you can take that wherever you go. And I thought that was a really interesting way to think about my career because I knew that being in hospitality, it was not something that I could do forever. It's not something I wanted to do forever. I mean, you know, you certainly sacrifice a lot being in the hospitality world and not being able to go to weddings and Christmas and Thanksgiving. And for me, it was capital. It was a means to an end, whatever that end may be with the hope that it would be a new beginning. So I started the Saint-Vivant side of what I was doing just to see what would happen. But also (laughs) I quickly realized that there weren't a lot of people doing it because you know, wine is sort of stuck like 10 to 15 years in the past. That was sort of the impetus behind why I did what I did. And today, where do I see my career going? I don't know. I quit my job at the right time. So that was good. I quit February of 2020 before we knew that COVID was gonna be a thing. And at that point, I had sort of you know booked enough that I wasn't going to starve. I wasn't comfy, but I knew I wasn't gonna die. And two weeks later, the world kind of went to hell. And things changed dramatically and I found myself (laughs) kind of right smack dab at the bullseye when everyone needed virtual and video content in the wine world. And there I was and there weren't a lot of us doing it. And you know, it's been a crazy nine months since that point. I didn't expect my career to take the turns that it has in the way of media and marketing, but I also sort of operated without any sort of trajectory, just knowing that if I had an audience that I could leverage that in some way and if I knew how to do some filming and do a little editing and, you know, do all the things that I was seeing in other industries that eventually the wine industry would catch up and they'd need me.
0: Well, I am a big fan in the last nine months. Your videos and your content have kept me positive and smiling. So thank you for that. I could ask you a lot more questions about wine because I am a newbie and I just love hearing you talk about the whole industry. But if it's okay with you, I'll start asking you questions that I ask all my guests on the show,
1: Mm -hmm. starting with who or what inspires you? I am inspired by my failures. I know that I'm on a podcast that, that really focuses on that, but it's true. I'm motivated most and inspired most when I realize that I could have done something better, or when I see someone doing something better. That is incredibly inspiring. So it's a collection more than you know a specific person. Like, of course, I was inspired by my mom and my dad when I was younger. They still inspire me, but today it's really just looking at all of the content that's being created, all the people that are succeeding in their respective industries and how I can be as good or better than they are. I'm very competitive.
0: (laughs) What are you most proud of so far?
1: Oh man, (laughs) just getting up every day. (laughs) I mean, the things that I'm most proud of, like quitting my job, I honestly, I think that's one of those things that we think about when we've got Day jobs with a steady paycheck, there's nothing more addictive than a steady paycheck, right? So it was the most nervous I've ever been, but I, it was also a moment where I was the most ready. I think for a long time I was looking for the signal, you know, the moment where I was like, enough is enough, I'm quitting my job. And like, it never came. <laughs> it was just like, I had to honestly assess where I was and where I wanted to go. And I looked at it and I was like, this is probably as good as it's going to get. And now I've just got to do it. And I'm really proud of myself for making the change when I did. I mean, I guess in retrospect, but I I am really proud of myself that I had the gumption and the confidence to go out and try to do my own thing without a lot ready to go behind it.
0: Well, there's so much of that, whether it was your move from Pennsylvania to New York or from New York to California, like all of those things, it sounds simple in hindsight, but it takes a lot of... Courage to do because it's, you know, you're going past the comfort zone. So it's kind of to your point of yeah. pushing yourself in your palate but it's pushing yourself to go and experience new things. I love that. We haven't talked a lot about hardship or struggle. Your story sounds so fun and polished because you are a small <laughs> a and you travel the world and it sounds so fun, but I know there's a lot more to it. Can you share maybe one or two of your most impactful growth moments? I used to say, you know, can you share one of your biggest failures or hardships? But yeah. it kind of pivoted where most people's hardships have really helped them grow. So if you could share, you know, one or two of your most impactful growth moments.
1: Going back to the moments when I was trying to figure out whether I was going to take the wine path or the stage path, Know, I sort of skimmed over it, but the reality was at that point in my life, I stayed up many nights trying to figure out what was the right move. For me, that was a psychologically really, really trying time in which I had no one to talk to. I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about it. I didn't feel like I had anyone in my circle of friends that would understand. And so it really was an internal struggle that I dealt with. That it wasn't until years later when I met someone who had a very similar journey. She was also involved in theater and and I think the thing that was hardest was I had spent my whole life dreaming this dream and wanting to be on stage and it for me it was a very real dream like I know that as kids sometimes you know we think about what we want to be when we grow up. But I honestly, truly believed that this was what I was going to do. And so there were very difficult moments where I would struggle with, you know, am I abandoning this dream that I've spent so much time working on? And if I abandon that, does that mean that I abandoned it forever to choose a different path? And I think, you know, in retrospect, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, knowing that eventually my path would lead to whoever it was supposed to and it you know it's a little bit too woo woo for my liking but i just kind of had to trust that the person that i wanted to be was more in line with taking the wine path than it was the theater path at the time and i had to explore that option so you know that was certainly i don't know if i would have changed anything or done anything differently or if i can even offer any words of advice but i think it was just a moment that i often reflect upon even in my moments now where quitting my job as a sommelier was more than just losing a paycheck. It was losing a title. It was losing a career that I had spent a lot of time building. It was losing a job that a lot of people wanted and would have killed to have had. So to me, it was like, is this a slap in the face to this job that is a very high profile desired job? Because at that point I wasn't a sommelier. I was the wine director of this program. Scott and Kelly had left. I had taken over for them. I had built a team of three wonderful sommeliers and I looked at my life and I said, I have a lot of power. I have a lot of influence. I have a great job is this the right move? Am I going to be as respected and appreciated without this title if I leave it? I just had to do it. I realized at that point that the restaurant wanted different things for me than I could give. And I had to hold myself accountable to my ability to be able to deliver on one or both or neither. And so I I had to choose one, obviously, because we can't do everything. And that was a big emotional struggle for me losing power is a really difficult thing to give up. And I think I made the right choice. I don't know. I guess we'll see.
0: (laughs) Oh, I I love that so much. And thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of people, to your point, would have stayed there because it is an elevated title. It's prestigious and it does have a lot of power and influence and it's hard to let that go. But Mm -hmm. one thing that I've learned from all the interviews with these amazing thought leaders and pioneers is that they all have a sense of self-awareness and confidence in themselves that really inspire me because it's easier to have gone the path of continuing that amazing career or doing something that you're afraid of that who knows if you're gonna grow or fail, but it's the point is you're taking a bet on yourself. And I just, I love that so much. So thank you for sharing that. And it, yeah for whatever reason, it reminds me of, have you ever heard of Rick Alias? He did a TED talk Mm-mm. about 10 years ago and he was on the flight. That crash landed in the Hudson Mm. in New York about 10 years ago. And he's a software executive, but he has a TED Talk that was titled, I Collect Bad Wines. And (laughs) what he meant by that was he's like, if the wine is ready and the person is there, I'm no longer wanting to postpone my life anymore. And it was like this kind of aha moment that was the catalyst for the plane landing in the Hudson. But I love that so much of the idea of you're saving all these wines for something. And it's like, what are we waiting for? <laughs> and so just for drink it now. So I love that. I collect bad wines. And I think similarly, you make wine so enjoyable. And what I love seeing you experience wines is you're very present. When you're drinking the wine, you're just shutting everything out. And you're sharing this experience with the listener and the audience. I just want to share that and saying that's my... Reception of it, it really is. It's very enjoyable to watch you because you really just enjoy life at that moment, and there's nothing else around. So I, I really love that.
1: Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot. I think if there's one thing that I had set out to do, it's not so much educate about wine because I think you know anybody can pick up a book and learn about wine. But I just kind of wanted to showcase what it was like to learn about wine and the way that I was learning about it. And I'm glad that that's resonated. And if I can say one thing, I think the confidence thing is I'm not always confident. You know, the story was not always rosy, but capitalizing on moments of bravery when they do happen and not living in the moments of doubt, I think that's been the thing for me that has allowed the most growth, being accepting of the fact that you're probably going to fail at least a couple times a day. It's not going to be like one big thing. There's no parade. There's no parade when you succeed. There's no parade when you fail. Just when I have moments of clarity and bravery, I try to make the changes then. And when I have really down moments, I kind of live in them and try to figure out where is this coming from? Is this coming from if you're in loathing or is it coming from like, I didn't do a good job on that project. I could have done better. And what operations can I change internally and from a productivity standpoint that won't lead me to these moments again, or at least in the same way.
0: What's next for Amanda McCrossen?
1: The last five years, I have just sort of worked to build an audience and continue doing what I'm doing. And if it makes me happy, I do it. If it doesn't, then I don't. So what is next? Creating more content. I love projects. I love creating content. I love the creation of things in general. So I have gotten really, really good at saying no to things in this past year, which is a huge, Plus for me, because I was not so great at that, because when you're in the theater world and in the film world, you just say yes to everything. But I've gotten a lot better at saying no to things. So I'm very excited about this podcast. It's called Wine Access Unfiltered. And we talk to people not in the wine world about their stories so that wine is not so precious and, and intimidating and reverent. So we talk about their journeys and most of them do not have like crazy wine collections or knowledge of wine. Most of them are people that have enjoyed a good bottle or two in the past or trying to get more into it. So that's been really fun for me and I hopefully travel and hopefully getting to have dinner with you. I don't know. Those are my like my short slash long-term goals.
0: <laughs> you say no to a lot of things and I really appreciate you saying yes to this show. Where can people find out more about you and some Vivant?
1: They can find me at Vivant on Instagram. So it's S-O-M-M-V-I-V-A-N-T. So Sommelier bon vivant, And then on YouTube, I have a YouTube channel where I create longer form content than on Instagram. And there's some websites and Google's really helpful these days (laughs) for finding people. The two platforms I'm primarily on are Instagram and YouTube.
0: Awesome. Amanda, thank you so much. I had such a pleasure talking to you and I'm sure other people will. And also grab a glass of wine when they listen. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes. No, thank you so much.